All right. In this episode, I'm joined by Phil Bach, CEO, Armada ETF Advisors. Phil's an ETF industry veteran, right? 15 years, 15 plus, we'll say, right? Great Twitter follow for insights and laughs and also good just, I think, overall financial content. Weekend for memes, personal favorite of mine. Always look forward to those. Um, Phil's done a lot in his career. He has um, some Bitcoin opinions, which is why we connected to record a a podcast. I want to unpack those, but Phil, ultimately, thanks for uh, carving out some time. Yeah, thanks, Isaiah. My pleasure. Uh, happy to be here. Yeah. So first, I want to give you uh, an opportunity. So the focus of the this kind of podcast series is it's going to go to advisors, and you obviously run two funds and have talked a lot about um, REITs, right? And private private REITs. And I know that's always a fan favorite of a lot of the, the FinTwit community as well. Um, the best part is when I was at Merrill, B-REIT was a personal favorite of uh, the office that I worked out of. And so it's been fun to kind of watch uh, articles and pieces of things that have come out uh, around that. Um, I've learned a lot uh, post leaving there, but uh, that was one that was is interesting. So I guess kind of lay the groundwork of, of what you all are doing at Armada, What's the kind of key themes and uh, we'll go from there. Yeah. So we are a REIT specialty asset manager um, focused on real estate and uh, real estate investment trust. We have uh, two funds. We have one ETF that tracks uh, a pure play on the residential REITs. So as you look at REITs now, they're kind of the definition of a REIT keeps getting extended where you have you know, data centers and cell towers and hospitals and things that are, you know, real estate-ish, but not exactly real estate. And we wanted uh, the market to have a pure play on, on residentials, which is residential REITs. You're talking more about the rental income. Uh, we think they're fairly stable in in downturns relative to home prices and relative obviously to office REITs and some of the more problematic areas. So more focused exposure. We just launched a second fund, which tracks the fundamental allocation of the private REIT fund. So you mentioned BREIT. That was a great trade. BREIT has done very well. However, we think that BREIT and many others like it, many of the private REIT funds have become a victim of their own success where they've had tremendous asset gathering, tremendous uh, you know price accumulation in the NAV. Um, but as real estate has gotten repriced, those funds have not. And you could say that's because there's something magical that they're doing, that they have some sort of special sauce that makes them immune from downturns. Or you could say that there are structural inefficiencies with the way that appraisal-based lagging NAVs are being calculated and disseminated to say that, you know, this doesn't really pass a smell test. And uh, we've done a lot of research and have come to the conclusion of the latter, that it doesn't pass a smell test. And that you can access those same fundamental strategies using public REITs that's going to give you better liquidity, lower cost, and significantly better underlying valuations. We think at this point in time, a 40% divergence in valuations that you could take advantage of. Um, and, and finally, we have an AI platform called Arialgo that we're integrating um, and managing uh, separate accounts and uh, private assets uh, that way. So um, AI purpose-built towards REITs. So, so really a, lo- a large focus on real estate. And I think where, where you know, kind of to bring it back to the topic of, of today, which I'm really excited to talk about Bitcoin, um, in my personal investing journey, and I started off as, as, as a trader, really more of a capital markets guy, and then uh, ultimately a product guy, did a lot of smart beta work early in my career and had a very top-down look, right, at, at the markets, um, did, was never a fundamental analyst. And I think, you know, the market is changing so fast, the market structure that we have where people are really losing the idea of fundamental analysis altogether to the point where it's getting to a level that I think is a little bit concerning. Like, what are we actually betting on? What do we really own? And you start looking at, you know, some of the issues in um, monetary policy and, you know, the the 
you know, obviously the wealth gap, but the never ending printing and, and, you know, the idea that, that the Fed and, you know, the economists can kind of micromanage and fix the markets and, and prevent any, um, you know, downturn, which is laughable because we've had more of them, you know, more boom and bust cycles, the more resources that we give to these policymakers, the more we seem to have. But um, I think, you know, it's kind of brought you and I to a lot of common ground. And that process of also, um, you know, trying to like think deeply about valuations in the market has led me to a lot of contrarian views. I mean, contrarian as they would be considered to me, they're just my views that I came to honestly. But, you know, I think, um, you know, a lot of, you know, that, that a lot of the, um, you know, the assets, you look at the S&P 500, 28% is in seven stocks, over 50% of the NASDAQ. Those stocks also are responsible for almost all the gains so far this year. You look at the runaway valuations of these FANG names, um, monopolization issues, monopolies, which is also partly explains those seven stocks, but really in every industry. Um, and really like the institutionalization of the capital markets. And, you know, you think about the unintended consequences and where things are going to go if we don't stop on this train. And that's what led me into REITs, which is a, a hard asset, a tangible asset, something that even though, you know, in the short term due to rates and financing issues, there could be significant downturns. It still is, at the end of the day, a real intrinsic, you know, you're going to own properties. If you own REITs, they own properties. If you own your own real estate, you know, there's something tangible there. It's not a totally financialized asset. Only, only, only through leverage, leverage has it been. But I think those are the same principles that you talk about when you talk about Bitcoin. And I think we have a lot of common ground. Um, you know, I think not to kind of jump the gun here, but I think, you know, what you wanted to discuss on this podcast is Bitcoin. I have not gone all in on, on Bitcoin or any crypto asset as the future. And I am a bit of a gold bug. So, you know, I think our, our views are probably more similar than dissimilar. And, uh, you know, I look forward to kind of discussing those areas where, you know, where they diverge and see, you know, where the common ground sits. Yeah. So, so many things there that, you know, I hide my smile behind my mic over here as, as you talk about that. Cause I'm like, Oh my gosh. Um, Lots to, to unpack and think about, but I would agree. I think there's a ton of common ground. And I told you, I think in, either in a DM or, you know, just in a reply on X slash Twitter slash whatever it is now um, that I think you're a Bitcoiner, right? A lot of the things that you see, it fits that narrative and seeing issues. And it's like the conclusions of like, how do you fix that? Maybe you're different, but I think ultimately more people are waking up and recognizing like, this doesn't really work. And this isn't, it, this isn't structured in a way that is sustainable longer term. And I think that is the part that, that I want to dig into. <clears throat> I want to add, I might say that till, for, for later, but you did tweet <laughs> and I, I, I tried to, I tried to do a little bit of research before I jumped on because I wanted to, to bring up different things that you've kind of talked about. And one of them was if you're, if you wouldn't be willing to pay off debt, of your long dead ancestors, you can't expect a uh, country to either. Eventually, we all come to see that the U.S. needs to reset its balance sheet. Don't get mad at me. I don't like it either. And it was in July. And I agree. It's like, unless you think gravity isn't real or math doesn't hold, like at some point, this debt thing doesn't sustain. Yet so many different people will will point to, you know, different things. And I hopefully at this point, there's no one that believes that Stephanie Kelton and the MMT crowd like actually have any merit. But there still are people that I see that, that give credence to that. And I just laugh. I'm like, are you paying attention at all? Like, do you even hear what you're saying? But is, is debt a problem for America? And, and how do you think about solving that? I mean. So I, I think, you know, MMT and Stephanie Kelton were a way to kind of push the Overton window further out on this and to say like, all right, here's the extreme case. But me, you know, I'm 
uh, I think Krugman is even over there, but, but like, you know, me yeah. as, as a theoretical, as a mainstream, you know, as, as a Janet Yellen, right? Like I'm not, I'm not crazy like them. They've, you know, that, that shows how extreme people can be in this idea and it allows them to seem moderate while their views, I think are in fact extreme. And, you know, the, the, the problem with deficit spending. So, I mean, first of all, the idea that the idea is that we're going to support, we're going to use deficit spending in the bad times and then we pay it off in the good times, Right. There is never a good time, right? There's never a time where the politicians say, oh, we're so fat and happy now. Let's start paying down our debt. Let's start cutting entitlements. It's, it's pretty obvious that that day will never come uh, and, you know, and will never come. The idea that, that we are immune to inflation, that we are somehow special, you know, what happens in Venezuela and Turkey couldn't possibly happen here in America because of American exceptionalism and because we have Powell and Yellen and they're so smart. And, you know, yeah, the dollars, the reserve currency, but you know, you squeeze a lemon enough, right? And there's no more juice left. And, and you know, they are really, you know, getting to a point where, you know, using the dollar's reserve currency status where there's not a lot of juice left to squeeze is already being threatened now by, you know, the brick currency. Um, so I think, um, you know, a lot of what would be considered mainstream views on deficit spending are in fact to me very radical. We're borrowing from the future. We're stealing from the future. We're stealing from our grandkids. We're giving them this onerous debt. And it would say, oh, no, the debt's not really a lot when you artificially suppress rates. But as we're seeing now, the inevitable inflation, rising rates, all of a sudden, uh, debt service is 20% of our GDP. I mean, it's wild. 20% to pay off the debts of the boomers that because they couldn't tolerate a 10% drawdown in the S&P and had to you know, do QE7 and QE8. I mean, it's outrageous. It's theft. It is theft, right? So- you know, I think there, there's a little bit of denial going on. There's a little bit of kick the can down the road. You know, we're, we deal in four-year cycles in this country from a political standpoint. We have this boomer, you know, population, this huge population. They're still holding on to all the wealth, all their assets, all their retirement assets in their homes and in their stocks, you know, is, you know, essentially you could say that's the government mandate to support those. And the question is, what happens when that wealth transfers down from the boomers to the next generation. And one of the things that gets transferred down is this debt. Now, why should we be willing to pay it? Right. And I'm, when I say we, I'm really talking about my kids or my grandkids, right? Why should they inherit this debt and be willing to pay it off when they can just default? And I know it was like, well, you can't default. We're America. We can't default. Well, why not? Why can't we default? And we have, we have defaulted technically many times. Right. <laughs> now, you know, people say, well, the dollar is still so strong. Okay. The dollar is priced in terms of, the euro and the yen, right? When you look at the DXY, the dollar basket is almost all euro and yen. And you could say that the Europeans and the Japanese have gone to even more extreme than we have in these uh, short-sighted fiscal policies. So I think, you know, I think ultimately there's, there's three ways out of it, right? One is we come to our senses quickly before it's too late. It might be too late, but I'm not sure. We come to our senses quickly and we say, okay, we are going to have a sound monetary policy. We're going to get the debt to GDP below 100, hopefully even lower. You know, we're going to stop deficit spending. We're going to balance the budget. Um, and I think that that would be the best outcome for everybody. I don't think there is the political will for that. And if we say that there's no political will for that, well, what, what's left? What, are the, what can we do? There's two other, two other solutions. One is a debt jubilee where all the countries get together and they say, okay, we are just going to, you know, we're all going to cancel debt at the same time. And it's a pretty radical idea. Um, but I, you know, whereas I think it, it was not something that could have been considered um, just a few years ago, I think it's almost to the point of inevitability today because the third option is the worst option. And the third option is hyperinflation. What happens in hyperinflation is the debt gets devalued because the dollar of the value 
itself goes down. So we owe 30 trillion in debt, right? If the dollar's worth half as much as it was, guess what? In current real terms, we owe 15 trillion in debt, right? And on and on. Um, the, for, for, you know, what we know will happen is as soon as we have an economic trouble, as soon as we have a drawdown in the stock market or anything like that, the Fed is going to come in with more QE. They're going to lower rates. They're going to say, screw inflation. They've proven that that's what they'll do. Yeah, they're, they're talking tough now. Rates aren't even that high on a historic level, but okay, they're keeping rates up. They're saying that they're doing everything they can to fight inflation, right? <laughs> but let's give that to them. Will they still hold that policy if the S&P is down 20%? I don't think they have the, the will to do so. So when they start coming in with more and more QE at shorter and shorter intervals with bigger and bigger dollars and less and less efficacy, right? And that's the point that we had hyperinflation when their policies no longer work because the dollar is worthless. And that's a sad day. We don't want to get there, right? As much as, you know, it's, it's fun to fear monger and, and, you know, talk about doomsday scenarios. Hyperinflation is what led to people in Venezuela eating dogs and cats and starving to death. And I mean, we do not want hyperinflation here. We want to avoid that at all costs. So again, sound monetary policy, debt jubilee, or hyperinflation, I don't see any other way out of it. Yeah. And I think anyone that is kind of of the opinion that Bitcoin helps fix this, which is a meme that's out there, you know, Bitcoin fixes this, right? And sometimes it gets overused, but there are moments where it's like, yeah, it, there are some things there. The Staples easy button is always going to be print money and kick the can because of just the incentive structure. And I'm a big believer in incentives drive everything. And so if you look at what's the incentive structure um, coming to the table and saying, hey, we're going to be adults and we're going to make hard decisions. That's unelectable. Like you're not going to get elected. No one's going to back that, right? You're going to make life harder for me. But I agree with you. We don't want Mad Max in the world burning. And I'm not one that says like, you know, uh, that's where we should go where there's no laws, there's no nothing, because, uh, I don't think that's a world that's great, especially for someone with, you know, young kids. Like I'm not really wanting to hole up in my house and try to defend myself with my food and all that other stuff. Like that doesn't sound great. I don't think that's what anyone wants. And, no. you know, uh, I, I think this, and I didn't have this prep, but I, so Jack, right. So, so Jack Dorsey tweeted the hyperinflation thing and Fintwit, you know, has their fun with it. Um, I'm more of the opinion that, He's not wrong because what you just said is is true, right? If we make bad decisions, that is where we're going to go because gravity matters and still there and math still matters. If we make bad decisions and continue to do this, we will get there eventually. Now, is it going to be as quickly as what he said? I'm always a believer of, you know, the the ability of corruption to just continue to go is probably longer than what we maybe even believe, right? So they'll be able to kick this longer than what I think. And I think that is one of the key things of like timing any of this is ridiculously hard and there's no way you can do it. Um, but did you, and this is getting a little off topic, did you say, or do you think that Jack Dorsey is a CIA asset? Is that something that you tweeted at one point or am I? I, I might've, I might've. Okay. I, I can't mean, remember. I was like, I can't remember if it's you or someone else. This rebranding of Jack Jack Dorsey is this like freedom fighting truth speaker is, is so offensive to me, given what we saw in the Twitter files, that he essentially sure. sold us all out to the CIA and the FBI. Uh, data that, that you know, should have required a warrant was freely exposed. People were, were prevented from speaking what we now know to be truths. And, uh, and misinformation was spread like wildfires, particularly about COVID, but also other things. Um, but there was just this, this open door, this, this complete... Uh, free access uh, for all of our personal data on Twitter to the intelligence agencies while Jack Dorsey was the CEO. So anything he says, he in particular, I take with a high degree of skepticism. He has earned our distrust. 
And I don't buy this whole rebranding of, of yeah. I mean, look, he, he personally is very well invested in, in Bitcoin. And, you know, when, 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 let's take Michael Saylor as an extreme, right? This guy stands to get tremendously wealthy if we have another Bitcoin run. And if Bitcoin collapses below, I forgot the number, I think it's like 11 or 12K or somewhere around there, uh, he's essentially bankrupt. So, you know, a fortune, a fortune of money, you know, and, and, and the two ends of the extreme are uh, going to be determined by the mark to market price of a thin volume, you know, thinly trade relatively, like relative to, you know, mainstream assets, um, asset, which means that it's, it's, uh, you know, it's a, it, Michael Saylor is a hairpin away from being either one of the richest people in the world to being completely bankrupt. So you have to consider that when he says, when, when that guy says, mortgage your house to buy more Bitcoin, you can't trust it. I don't trust it. I don't trust Michael Saylor. I don't trust Jack Dorsey. I don't trust just, just, just the same as I don't trust Larry Fink. And when Larry Fink comes out and says, Bitcoin is the world's biggest evil, like he did a few years ago, where he comes out today and says, Bitcoin is, is all the cures. Oh, yeah. I don't trust it, right? I don't yeah. trust it because I know he's got his own incentives. He's got his own goals. They don't include me, right? They don't include you. They include BlackRock AUM. They include BlackRock share price. That's his concern. He wakes up and goes to bed and that's what he's thinking about. So, you know, you have to have a high degree of skepticism when it comes to these things. And um, I don't even remember. Oh, oh, Jack Dorsey. Yeah. And yeah, so, so, so Dorsey, I, I, I don't trust him. Yeah. He was on. So Jack Mallers is the CEO of Strike and it's a kind of a Bitcoin, stablecoin, dollars, remittance kind of, of company. Um, and they had a long interview and it was interesting because Jack admits to some things that he should have done better. And, and right, like he, he owns some of it. But I thought the same thing in regards to a lot of the Bitcoin community. There's a lot of people that really dislike him and, and feel the same way that you do. And there's others that have been like, you know, fawning over him uh, in a different way. Similar to Sailor. I mean, there's a lot of people that, that feel Sailor is, you know, been the best cheerleader or a good advocate versus others being like, I don't know. I think the, the margin call piece to me was always a little bit you know, where exactly is that? How much more could he pledge? There's, there's lots of different things that he could do from that standpoint. The one thing that is true is it's a Bitcoin ETF, right? That is MicroStrategy is a Bitcoin ETF. Um, he's added 3 billion in the market cap to his company. So he's done exactly what he should be doing, right? In regards to thinking about running a company, whether you agree or disagree with the, the strategy behind it. Um, but yeah, I, I had Sailor down to, for us to get into at, at some point. Um, I, <laughs> I think he's extremely interesting, but the there's been a couple times with the mortgage, the house and do different things where I'm like, that that's not great advice, right? Like staying solvent is the biggest thing. And there's a lot of, and that's, the, I think that's the tricky thing with, with Bitcoin, right? So I believe Bitcoin is good, sound money. And if good, sound money is one of the things that is there, it's applicable to every single human on the earth. And there's gonna be good people, people you agree with, and there's gonna be evil, horrible people, right? Yep. If Vladimir Putin's like, I'm the biggest Bitcoin proponent, a lot of people are gonna be like, oh, Bitcoin's bad. It's like, no, yeah. if he can use it and leverage this, um, it means it's good because no one can stop it. Because going back to the dollar, right, we've weaponized that, right? We, we've taken the dollar and we, we took it out behind the shed and we shot it because we said, hey, we want to punish someone. And so how can anyone around the world trust this if it's like, oh, you piss off the United States, we're just going to steal from you. And so right. to me, that's a big issue where one of the, the calling cards, again, coming back to the Bitcoin piece, and I know we're kind of jumping around um, here uh, from that standpoint is, it's going to be used by people that we don't like, don't trust, and you don't have to. And I think that's kind of the beauty because unlike the current system, if Larry Fink has more assets, he has more control over it. 
Uh, Larry Fink can have as much Bitcoin as he wants, and he still doesn't drive the decision making of what happens within Bitcoin. And I think that's one of the big differences. And one of the big things I want to chat with you on was the difference between Bitcoin and crypto, because I know you sent out a tweet before we chatted and there was some folks that commented on it. And uh, I, I said, I'm a glutton for punishment knowing, you know, you know, hey, I'm not I'm not going to try to convince someone to do it. But there's this world of crypto and there's world of Bitcoin, right? I think they're two distinctly different things. I'm not a pro crypto guy. And anytime that there's been folks that have pushed a kind of a crypto narrative or these other things, I've probably not been the nicest person on Twitter. I'll be candid um, because to me, it's a distraction. And that is VCs pumping their bags and then dumping on retail. And I don't like that. I, I think that's terrible and gross. And I view Bitcoin as being very different. That's not the the intent or the goal for most people. There are certain bad actors and you know we can agree or disagree on who those folks are. But yeah, the crypto narrative to me is completely BS. And if you measure the 20,000 crypto assets in Bitcoin terms, there's four that have ever made a new all-time high against Bitcoin when measured in Bitcoin terms after three years. And so to me, it's like, why the hell even mess with all that shit? Unless you have inside information and you're a crook, uh, just leave it alone. And just saving this better asset that over time um, is monetizing in front of us. So yeah, I'll kind of pause so, there so, for so, thoughts. I, yeah, just, just to get back to your first point, I, I gotta, I gotta <laughs> give. I mean, that's that's a good point. If I were if I were to sit here, you know, I can criticize Sailor and and Dorsey, but if we were to make a list of everyone that holds U.S. dollars that is a uh, a bad person or someone I disagree with or any other currency, like obviously we'd be here all day. Sure. So <laughs> you know, that's a good point. It doesn't just because they believe in it doesn't mean they represent it. Um, in fact, you know, the, probably the most appealing thing to me about Bitcoin is the decentralization. And, you know, it kind of comes back to these two guys like like it's not just them. There are other there, there is a concentration of Bitcoin ownership. And, you know, Bitcoin is almost like to me, it seems like it's almost two things at once. It's, you know, direct peer to peer, limited supply, sound money. Right. That that the governments can't meddle with on one hand. And on the other hand, it's an instrument for speculation and an instrument for wealth creation potentially, right? You can get rich if you buy Bitcoin and it goes up. Um, and that has led to concentration of ownership. And I wonder if those two things are at odds with each other, right? If you're using this thing as a vehicle to grow your money, to buy it and then sell it to a greater fool later later on, is, is, that, is, is that synergy, is that harmonious with the idea of this is just a way to transact. I want to, you know, I'm a, I'm a wheat farmer. I want to sell my wheat, but I want to buy um, uh, a tire and we're going to, you know, in this post-apocalypse world, we can transact with Bitcoin. Do the, can those things live in harmony? Those two things, those two goals? I think they can. And so the way that I would kind of explain it is I think the, the folks that are the speculation of flipping back and trying to think of it more in fiat terms. So I love that the fact that fiat is now like in the lexicon again, and it's not like, hey, this is a car or a vehicle that we're <laughs> talking about. Like five years ago, no one talked about fiat currency or fiat money. And I think that's one thing that I'll give credence and credit to folks in Bitcoin and we'll even say broader crypto that have brought that back into understanding like what is, just asking the question, what is money? But so if I'm speculating, hey, number go up, get a Lambo, get rich, have more dollars, uh, I think it's a misunderstanding of what Bitcoin is. There's going to be those people, but we're in a late stage gambling on everything, YOLO trade. And so anytime that you can find something that will do that and get some juice, you're going to do it. But net net over the next five, 10 years, are you going to have more or less Bitcoin doing that? I think you're going to have a heck of a lot less. There's very few traders that have been able to do it. And there's countless examples of people that have tried to start funds that have done different things that were like too cute. Um, and then they get blown up. And whether they hold their funds in exchanges, they use leverage, 
um, I can go through the list. And you know what? I am left side of the bell curve. I'm the, the dumb one that says buy Bitcoin, uh, save into Bitcoin and uh, take it in self-custody so no one can take it and you'll be much better off. And the folks that take that advice of the kind of the stay humble stack sats per Matt O'Dell uh, have done really well, right? And so the speculator, they're going to do what they do. And let's say they're right for this cycle and they have a lot more and they go buy the big house, they buy the cars, all the other stuff. If and as Bitcoin monetizes, so it's going to go from collectible store of value, which I think we're in store of value stage, medium of exchange, unit of account. So when we go to the grocery store, hey, bread is, you know, how many sats? I think we're a ways away from that. I'll probably be old and gray when that happens. So I'm not, I'm not saying that that's tomorrow. Um, but at some point, they're going to have to come back and, and have these units, right? This Bitcoin to buy the goods that they want to service their Lambo. Because maybe I'm the, the dealer or I'm the, the mechanic. And I'm like, hey, I only accept Bitcoin. So they have to go create value because there's not, they can't just go get more. And like the fiat system today, you know, you have the, the Cantillon effect, right? You have, you're closer to the money printer, you're closer to those in power, you can get more money quicker, right? And you've seen that happen to the little lady down the street, you know, inflation, all this other stuff. Like, yeah, they get their social security, you know, CPI bump, they get these other things, but they're still way behind where they would have been versus I'm a BlackRock, I'm a, you know, private equity fund. And I bought up all these residential homes in 2021 renting them back out or bought all these assets. It's a big difference where with Bitcoin, whether I have a hundred thousand Bitcoin and you have one at some point, humans desire to consume stuff. I want to consume things. So if you provide me a service and you say, I only accept this money, well, that is going to be distributed over time. There's no way for me to hold it. I have to go create value then to go get more where right now it's a very different thing where if PAL or others or central banks around the world pump my bags and I own real estate and do all this other stuff and I have infinity leverage on the assets that I own and it's hamster wheel for everyone else to catch up to me. That's why you see the wealth gap gets so exploded. And there's the, the site, you know, WTF 1971 that kind of shows a lot of different charts and people can say, Hey, is it correlation or causation? And you know, all these different things around, but it's interesting, you know, working hours, productivity, wages, um, divorce rates, working parents, um, all kinds of things, obesity, you think about the food quality of stuff, like it's, it's amazing. And so, you know, 1971, for those that, you know, don't remember, that's, you know, we closed the gold window. Nixon said, Hey, you know, it's not redeemable. Go back to France. Like you don't get your stuff back. And to me, it's all curious. You start looking at that and things start to add up. And I, I look at it as the, the decentralization of Bitcoin is what makes it super important. And you've seen that kind of ossify through the pushback of the fork wars back in 2015, 2017, where they tried to say, hey, we're going to make the, the blocks faster so we can do more commerce. And there was a lot of money behind it. Coinbase, um, Bitmain, a lot of people, a lot of money, a lot of power try to push a change and it didn't happen. Right. And so the, the worry is that BlackRock's going to come in and they're going to try to push this ESG version of, of Bitcoin and change it. Right. Because they have that currently in their prospectus that they can choose basically which chain that they want to honor in their ETF, which is interesting. Um, but ultimately, the market's going to decide. And, and so to me, that is super, super important because in the past, you've had that kind of moment of, is it truly the, the individual or is it those in power that make the decisions? And Bitcoin's kind of said, you know what? It doesn't really matter if you have more connections. Like that doesn't work here. Those games don't work the same way. So it's me going on off on a tangent, a couple different things. But I do think Bitcoin gets more distributed over time uh, because people are going to need it because it's going to drive commerce. And if I'm providing a good in service and, you know, Phil and Isaiah want it, I got to pay for it because I'm not going to, you know, 
do the plumbing or the electrical work in my house, but the guy comes and says, Hey, I'll take sats for my work. I'm going to pay him gladly. Um, and I think at some point that's where, how it happens. And I think the U S is going to be slower, right? You talked about Venezuela. You talked about, you know, the global South is going to be where Bitcoin adoption happens for everyday use. If the United States took away the capital gains rate tax on Bitcoin and just said, Hey, free open market, see which one wins. Uh, the flood, like it would change drastically where Bitcoin could be used for daily use. But I think that's part of the the game, right? Yeah, it's, it's and make it hard. You know, a key part and, and what you're kind of alluding to is the fact that there's a, a fixed supply. So, you know, there can only be 28 million Bitcoin and therefore you can't flood the system with it. You can't devalue it by printing more. And, you know, I, I, I think that's a brilliant, you know, that was a brilliant part of the design of, of Bitcoin. Um, you know, during the global financial crisis, one of the things that really exacerbated things was the fact that not only did mortgage bonds blow up, but there were all these derivatives on the mortgage bond. So you had, you know, CD, you had credit fault swaps on the value of, of the bond mortgages. Um, and it meant that, you know, for every dollar of defaulted mortgage, I think there's something like a hundred in, in actual losses. Um, if I go to my buddy at the bar and I say, Hey man, I'll bet you a hundred bucks. Bitcoin goes up or down. And he says, yes. I've essentially, or somebody in that trade has gone long Bitcoin, but it hasn't come out of the supply. And what we're seeing now with, you know, futures and swaps and, and all sorts of derivative products is people making bets on, on Bitcoin that's not reflected in the supply. So somebody's buying it out of a limited supply, they'll put your price up at these like kind of secondary markets that are popping up all over the place. Um, and a Bitcoin ETF, you know, the, the spot ETF that they're hoping to get approval for obviously will hold actual Bitcoin. But derivatives on that, and certainly the futures-based ETFs, the futures themselves, um, are not. They're 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 outside. So, like, is this idea of a limited supply is that real? Is it really a limited supply? And what about you know? I've got my Bitcoin stored here, but they're lending me. They're using it as collateral, lending it to me, giving me cash. I can go buy more Bitcoin. You know, you've got leverage popping up in in so many different ways and so many different places. Um, you know, I wonder if that that limited supply is in fact limited in, in practice. I love that. And it's a great question. And I think that there, there are folks that will say, hey, banking, lending, credit will not happen on a, you know, a sound money or a Bitcoin standard. I don't think that will happen. I think it will just change and it will evolve. So it will still be there. But yes, uh, I think FTX is a great example, right? They actually had when everything happened, right? And I think there's still some things that need to be clear there. And there's, you know, we're not going to get derailed into FTX and, and Sam. Uh, but they had less than like two Bitcoin for over a billion dollars worth of Bitcoin. So they're selling a ton of paper Bitcoin. Right. So what they were doing is they were going out in the market, buying it if you wanted to take self-custody. But a lot of people were just fine with letting it sit at the exchange. And so the exchange can then go create as much as they want. Right. And so uh, Trace Mayer, uh, old time kind of OG Bitcoiner, I think it's January 2nd or 3rd, proof of keys day, basically. Hey, drain the exchanges, take self-custody, make sure that you can enforce the 21 million supply cap. So it's going to be on us. Right. And I say us as anyone that wants to opt in and, and own some Bitcoin to actually not have to ask for permission to move the funds and the stuff that you have to enforce that. And if you want to use leverage, you want to do these different things. If we can't go create more of that asset and you get margin called, you are done. You are toast. You have made a bad decision and you're blown up. There's no bailout, right? The, the fact that, you know, like Goldman made it through the great financial crisis, right? Uh, and people still had lots of money after that, that were in place of leadership. They should have gone to zero. They should have been toast because they made bad decisions. You made a bad bet. You did something wrong and the market has punished you. And I think it brings back the kind of personal responsibility and 
people getting blown out. And maybe this is just my naive, hopeful view of the future that it'll go there. But how are we going to go? How are you going to go create more of this Bitcoin thing when the only way for new Bitcoin to be issued is when a new block is mined by the miners? Right. And so every 10 minutes, new Bitcoin is issued and that issuance schedule continues to run exactly as operated. There's never been more issued. It gets cut in half every four years. We have 92 percent of the supply out there. Where are you going to go get more Bitcoin? You're just bankrupt. You're just gone. And so you lose whoever lent you that. That is just a loss on their balance sheet and they're toast. And so you can bet me at the bar, whatever, but if I can't collect it, we're not creating more Bitcoin there. There, but there is going to be, you know, those layers of leverage. I think it just is going to bring back the ability for there to be true losses versus, hey, uh, so everyone drained our um, you know, the 42 million out of Silicon Valley Bank, but we're gonna backstop it and we'll give a sweetheart deal to JP Morgan and we'll patch the hole and make it like that just doesn't happen. You're just gone. You just lose it. Versus, you know, trying to have FDIC, which doesn't truly cover anything because it's covering, you know, what one and a quarter percent of all the assets that are out there. And so right. it's just there to make us feel good versus you actually having some risk there. So that would be the way I would answer it, um, right or wrong. Okay. Um, explain Tether to me in a way that, that makes sense. So this is, let me get to where to have a Tether piece. So I, I'll say this. I think Tether is the new Euro dollar market. So that's the way that I would explain Tether. Because what Tether is doing is it is basically giving dollar assets to folks around the world that need it. Because not everyone wants to have Bitcoin. If I'm making $10 a day and I'm spending $9.75, I can't have Bitcoin be volatile because I'm, I literally can't buy food or I can't pay for where I'm living if I'm in, a, you know, in the global south. So they want stable coins. They want dollar assets. And it's hard because maybe their country doesn't allow them to have dollars. So Tether fills that gap. And I look at Tether as being the the asset that allows them to do that. And what Tether's business model is, is beautiful, right? There's no yield that they're paying on it. They can hold treasuries making 5%. They are making a ton of money right now, ton of money. And so I think one of your questions, you had a 2022 tweet and said, can someone explain to me as if I was a young child or golden retriever, what stops Tether or other uncollateralized stable coins from creating more coins out of thin air and using them to buy more Bitcoin? How's that any different than the dollar? They just make more dollars. Where do the dollars come from? Yeah, right. I mean, they do, but it's no, the same thing. But we're aware. We know the money supply, yeah. right? They're, they're transparent. I mean, maybe sometimes after the fact, but we know we know what they're doing. You know, my, my question with Tether, I mean, the idea of I give you a dollar, you give me something that's, you know, native digitally, I can then buy Bitcoin or, or whatever else I want to do. Um, that That's great. That's all fine and well. I'm saying that if there's no accounting and there's no trust that I actually gave them the dollar. And I've read a lot of the research of Bennett Tomlin. I don't know. I, I, I can't, like, I, I don't know enough to say this. And that's why I want you to kind of explain it to me. But based on my understanding of Bennett Tomlin's research, it, it seems very likely that they are creating tethers out of thin air and then buying Bitcoin with it. And if so, I mean, that's obviously problematic on a number of levels. Um, I mean, what, what do I make of that? So a, I think if tether, implodes, goes away tomorrow. Does Bitcoin trade down from that? Probably, right? But does it fundamentally matter if Tether's around for Bitcoin? Absolutely not. Tether is not like holding Bitcoin up. Now, they have 72.5 billion in treasuries. They're making a billion in excess profits per quarter. They have more treasuries than the UAE, Australia, Mexico, Thailand, Philippines, Spain. And they're going to allocate from their, unre- or from their realized pro- pro- profits with Bitcoin 15%. So anything that they have profit-wise each quarter, and they just announced that in May 2023, they're going to start owning more Bitcoin. So yes, they're actively buying Bitcoin. 
right? And so the beautiful thing with Bitcoin, because it's an open ledger, you can see and say, hey, do they actually own those Bitcoin? And what are they buying them with? Well, they're going to use dollars. They're going to use something to go out and, and buy those. And so the demand for Tether itself and creating Tether out of thin air. Yeah. I mean, what what is Tether? Ultimately, it is a dollar promise. So you are trusting Tether to do what is right. Absolutely. Agree with that. Just like any other USDC, you know, circle, same thing. There's a trust model there that they're not going to, you know, rug pull you, right? That the, the tether is actually going to work. It's the same promise of anything from a, from a monetary perspective, which is different because one of the big things I, I feel like from a, from a Bitcoin perspective is it's like, hey, if you run a node, you take self-custody, you do these different things. I don't have to trust that someone else actually has it. It's the same idea of like, if I go put my money in, you know, some central Indiana, you know, regional bank, I'm trusting that they're not going to blow up and that I'm going to get backstopped by the FDIC if they do. And so that to me is, is similar. Um, I think the tether, I'll call it the tether FUD has been making its rounds, but tether seemingly is lasting longer and seems to be stronger because they're, they don't have to pay out any yield, right? So they actually have a really great business model. They can go and hold these assets on their balance sheet. They can collect you know, 5% as rates rise. They're actually stronger as rates rise. And then they are able to flip those profits into Bitcoin and have sound money to backstop everything from there. To me, I think Tether is more stable than probably most of the banks in the United States. I, what about a scenario where, where the government feels like Bitcoin is a true threat to the you know, sovereignty of the US dollar, to the reserve currency status of the US dollar? Maybe it's through Tether, maybe it's directly. I mean, they've already done quite a few things um, recently to take out some of the bad actors, long overdue, I think, but to take out some of the bad actors in a space. What if a scenario where the government says, all right, we, we want to really wage war here on Bitcoin. We want to shut it down. What would be the, um, uh, the tools that they have that they can you know, use to do that? And how much of a threat is that to you know, either the goals of Bitcoin to become a direct peer-to-peer -peer, uh, default currency or to the price accumulation of Bitcoin? Yeah. So the way you stop it is say, hey, all fiat on-ramps and off-ramps are closed. There's no way for you to buy it. They can do that tomorrow. So I think that would be the way to attack it. Uh, I think that going back to the idea of like the 6102 FDR seizure of gold and the repricing is probably the good analogy there, right? And if you look at the, the folks that had gold at the time, not that many turned in their gold, right? They just kind of sat on it and just didn't talk about it. I think it'd be a similar thing. Now, there's enough people that have been vocal, you know, yours truly, that they'd be like, hey, Isaiah, you probably have some Bitcoin. So maybe there's ways that, you know, individuals like myself would get pressure on themselves. So, you know, ideally, um, from that standpoint, it would be making decisions on a personal level, like how, how much you want to fight this. And is there a legal means that they can do that? And I, I say that, but, you know, they can kind of do whatever the hell they want, candidly. So um, I think that they could shut off the on-ramps and off-ramps. I think that would actually strengthen Bitcoin because it shows that it's a true threat. And so you'd actually be feeding the beast, right? So if it's not a threat and it's something that's fake internet, you know, magic money that nerds in their basement use, uh, then why would you call it out and say this is a true threat? Because now all of a sudden you're giving it legitimacy. You're saying, hey, this thing actually has legs and they can ban it here. You can't stop it around the world. It's global. So they'll just be like, okay, if I'm a Bitcoin OG and I have a ton of Bitcoin, I can just leave. I'll just leave. And so the beautiful thing with Bitcoin is if I can memorize 12 words, I can just get in an airplane, one-way ticket, and I'll just take my wealth with me. Now they can hunt me down and 
travel around the world to try to bring me back and, you know, extradite me and all that other stuff. But good luck if all kinds of people do that, where I can't really shove, you know, $10 million worth of gold bricks up my, my butt to, to smuggle them <laughs> out or bags of cash to fly away. So Bitcoin is so portable. And if other countries all of a sudden say, hey, you know what? We don't really love that. We've been under the boot heel of the United States and they've kind of came and screwed us for, for a number of years. If you want to come here and set up your businesses, we love Bitcoin. We're open for it so that you get this kind of idea of competition comes back. And I think that game theory would play out. And again, Bitcoiners have talked about this for a while. We'll see. Like, I will tell you, I don't want to leave the United States as much as there's issues here. This is the best place to be. We were wonderfully blessed. I love where I'm at. Wouldn't want it to change. And yes, it's messed up, but I think there's still a way to fix it. Part of the reason why I'm so bullish on Bitcoin is Bitcoin holds all the American ideals and values that was founded on and it can bring that back and like come hell or high water. I'm going to fight like hell to make that happen. And whether I'm successful or not, it's like, that's a life worth living. So to me, that's one of the main missions on my side, but yeah, the United States can do it, but you have to go back to States rights. The States will stand up. Texas will say, Hey, uh, federal government, fuck you. Right. We're not doing it. And you're going to start to see different States just say, absolutely not. They've passed um, legislation in Texas for digital assets that anyone can hold and, and um, you know, any citizen in the, in the, in the state can hold those assets. And that is, that is something that they will legally protect. And you have the right to mine in Wyoming and Arkansas, they can mine Bitcoin. You have uh, Kentucky that has incentivized, you know, Bitcoin miners because they need jobs. And so ultimately go back to incentives. So what's the incentive? If I have a lot of Bitcoin wealth in my state. I want to keep the Bitcoin wealth in my state. I want these people here to spend their money so I can you know, do the things I want to do. And so it brings back the idea of incentives. And I think Bitcoin's incentive structure is built around people are going to be greedy. People are going to look after themselves, but ultimately you know, it's able to harness that and allow it to work together where no one has to trust each other, but they can kind of you know, opt into a system where everyone's going to agree on the rules instead of it being you know, the monopoly game that the rules change every round. And all of a sudden it's like, well, there's two people here at the game board that really know all the rules before they happen. And they seem to be accumulating a lot of the property. And I don't really love how this is working over here. And that would be- The rules would be- change and the rules change. Hey, oh, you know, you your bank deposits uh, went to zero. All right, we're going to make you whole because it wasn't your fault. Yeah. I'm not even against that they did that, but it's just like, those weren't the rules. The rules were the FDIC max, right? The rules were the limit. Yeah. Right? We're going to bail out the banks. That's not, those aren't the rules, right? That's not how it's supposed to work. But again, you know, the political will- to allow, you know, people to lose money is, is just not there. It's a corrupted system. Yeah. So I, I agree. I think there's, there's a ton of, of corruption that's there, but yeah, the United States can try to ban Bitcoin, to crush Bitcoin, to do as much as they can. And you, you look at, I think the China mining ban is a good example as well, right? So they, there was about 50% of the hash rate, which means about 50% of the miners around the world were operating in China, low power, easy to do. You plug in, do whatever. Um, they banned it. A, the Bitcoin network, dropped, but it worked flawlessly. Like if you unplugged half of AWS's servers and tried to run the world, it wouldn't work very well. So like Bitcoin still, you know, function was fine through that. Uh, But there's still like 10 to 15% of hash that's still in China and it's technically banned. Now, are there people that have connections that they're like, eh, you know, we look the other way because of certain arrangements? Probably. So there's going to be, you know, that kind of corruption there. But I think if tomorrow Bitcoin was uh, banned, the the idea would be, okay, they're going to go up and round up people and and do that. They're going to make a scene. They're going to drag me out of my whitey tidies on you know TV and and throw me in handcuffs and haul me away, right? Like, w- w- 
you're going to do that all over the place. You've seen that happen. Yeah. But I like that idea that like, you know, like water always finds the lowest level, right? Bitcoin will find freedom. Bitcoin will find the place that allows them to mine, the place that allows them to transact. Um, you know, the Bitcoin can, you know, that, that it's so portable, you know, like, like you said, 12 words, you know, that, that you can just pick it up and plop it down anywhere in the world. And there's always going to be somewhere in the world where, you know, we're going to be allowed, hopefully, you know, hopefully it'll still be America. There's always going to be somewhere in the world that's going to stand for freedom. And, you know, look, again, you know, I've brought up a couple of questions, objections and, you know, different things, but, but there are, you know, some of the things that you're saying, like you said, I'm a, I'm a Bitcoiner. There are things that, that truly do resonate. Like, you know, when you talk about, um, you know, the American ideal and fighting for individualism, you know, the, the idea of decentralization, the idea of peer-to-peer, direct peer-to-peer transaction with no intermediaries, um, I, th- I think it's a beautiful thing. I, I, I really do. And, you know, it, it, you know, I, I guess a lot of the questions I have are more about the speculative side of it and more about, you know, the accumulation side and the concentration and people trying to get rich. And, you know, we all saw in the first run up of, of 17, I think there's a lot of people that kind of jumped on a bandwagon trying to get rich quick, uh, unserious people, scammers of different kinds. Um, you know, people were uh, flaunting the price gains and, you know, oh, have fun staying poor and all that. And there's just a lot of behavior generally that really turned a lot of people off, including me. And over time, you know, like we're starting to see more and more people like yourself, serious people that are in it for the right reasons, kind of taking the seats of those that are now off to the next thing, right? The, the, The people that went into the metaverse and now AI or whatever, whatever new thing that they're doing. And, um, I think the true believers, it's like to me, like the Bitcoin people that I know, it's the like everyone's on the polar end. It's either like the best people, the best people, the smartest people, the willing to, the people that are willing to be contrarian, that have conviction, that are in it for the right reasons, and then also the worst people, and like nothing in between, nothing. There's like no middle class Bitcoiners that are like reasonable, but they're like, yeah, I'm also speculating on it. You know, it's like you're either like a purist or you're a charlatan. Um, but I, I, you know, I think over time we're starting to see the messaging from the purists uh, start to win. That's that's my observation. I would say, I don't know. There is a, I think there's a Detroit Bitcoin meetup. Uh, I'll send it to you after, right? Um, go and talk to normal people that own Bitcoin that go to those things. It's pretty interesting. It's illuminating. Um, I've talked to more baby boomers that have Bitcoin that were disenfranchised, old school gold bugs, 2008, just burned them out like nobody's business. And they were so disenfranchised. And, you know, are open to Bitcoin. And I think that there's more everyday people that are waking up to seeing it normalized. And you talked about the Overton window. That's another thing that I always would hear. And I'm like, what the hell is the Overton window? It's like, I got to Google this, right? Um, Early on. And then it's like, oh yeah, but the Overton window for Bitcoin has changed too, because you have three presidential candidates that are talking about it. You have RFK who, you know, whatever people think about RFK Jr., he's not going to win. He's not going to get a chance to debate Biden. We know how this is going to end up. We're going to get Biden and Trump and it's going to be a sad day in the United States. But- (sighs) With that, you have DeSantis who says, you know, he wants everyone to be able to do Bitcoin, whatever that means. Um, I don't know what do Bitcoin is, but cool. And then you have uh, Vivek who is, you know, pro Bitcoin as well. There's three candidates. And if four years ago, that was never a talking point. So the next four years is going to be, what's your stance on Bitcoin? That's how it changes. And I think so many people are like, well, Bitcoin is too volatile to be a currency. It's like Bitcoin is bootstrapped from zero to 600, you know, billion. It's gone up to a trillion in 14 years. Like this is something where it's, there's a long-term horizon of we are going to, and I say we as being people that believe in Bitcoin, they want to see it happen faster. It's going to take longer, but 
when you have everyone else playing these short-term four-year games versus other people that are playing decade games, you know who's going to win? It's the same idea of like, what has China been trying to do, right? They're playing these generational games. They're building out things that are happening over time where the United States, we just want to shoot ourselves in the foot every so often. And so I think from a Bitcoin perspective, it is saying, you know, lengthen your time horizon, think about the future and build robust, sustainable, you know, resilient type of, you know, things don't take on leverage because people have gotten burned so much. And the idea of staying humble, saving into Bitcoin, don't get cute, hold it in your own and go create value for the world. And you're going to obtain more Bitcoin. That's the message. And I think that goes back to the kind of the, the American dream of like, I can go out, spend less than I make and hold something that retains value versus gets, you know, 40% of it printed in two years. Like you're screwed. How do you, how do you make business decisions? How do you make personal financial decisions? If you know, the measuring stick is always changing. It's like try building a house when your tools are different every day or the measuring stick or the measuring tape doesn't work. Like your house is going to be borked. It's going to have horrible, horrible issues. And that's what I think Bitcoin brings is it says, here's the rule set. You know what it is. You can say, I don't like it and that's fine. But at some point you're going to have to turn around and say, you know what? I might have to enter that. And I think there's going to be more and more people that are going to have to you know, have a slice of humble pie at some point. And this is the have fun staying poor in a nicer way, right? You called me serious and I was like, I don't know about that, right? Like I've, <laughs> I've been that guy. I try not to be at times. I'm trying to get better as I mature and become smarter. But there is a point where if people don't want to be intellectually honest and understand that there are issues and it's like, oh, well, I'm just going to buy VTI and chill. I'm going to buy VTI and ag and I'll be good because why do I need anything else? And it's like, buddy, do you understand that, you know, it's really this simple, uh, the quantitative easing makes the stock market go up and quantitative tidy makes it go down. And all you're doing is just saving into this other asset. You're, you're doing no work fundamentally to understand what you own. You're just saving into stocks because stocks go up. And I do agree with what you said earlier. It is almost a national security risk for the stock market to be held up because you have so much wealth there. And that is really the, the ticket to get reelected is at all costs, make sure the stock market doesn't crash. Yeah. And look, I, I can understand to a degree half on staying poor when people have been laughed at and dismissed for a long time. And, you know, you're telling everyone, oh, no, I'm, you know, I'm investing in this Bitcoin thing, especially early on. And everyone's like, you know, oh, ha, 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 you know, but like, yeah. it's a big joke. And then all of a sudden you feel validated and you want to, you know, want to announce it. And this, similarly, I could see how everyone feels validated when a presidential candidate is talking about it, or when Larry Fink is talking about it. Um, but to me, those are at odds with what we were talking about earlier. Like it shouldn't need the approval of a presidential candidate. It shouldn't need the approval of a Larry Fink. It should be the opposite. It should be like, hey, this thing is happening. We're transacting. We're decentral. We're outside the system. Whether or not there's an ETF, whether or not BlackRock is on board, whether or not a president is on board. Um, and, I, you know, it's like, I understand how it's validating after fighting for something for so long and feeling like an outsider and now being acknowledged by people who are inside. But when it starts to, Yet when it starts to get pulled back inside the system, I mean, to me, that's just an attempt by Wall Street to bottle it, package it, put a label on it and sell it in the market. Amen. You know? and, and it's like, well, that's everything this was again. Like that, that's that's the whole point of this thing was was to get away from all that. Yep. Yeah. So I love the tweet that you had. And I think this is actually what sparked me reaching out and like saying, hey, let's chat because you said there's no asset or ethos that Larry Fink won't sell you as long as BlackRock AUM goes up. There's no advocate or spokesman that Bitcoin decentralist won't embrace as long as Bitcoin USD number go up. Whole scene stinks of greed and self-interest, hard pass, right? And I agree. Like, I think the idea of the ETF is 
taking the horse and buggy and strapping an engine to it. It's like, <laughs> what the hell? We don't need that. Like the ETF is, is I can't, I will have paper IOUs with number go up. I think the, the optimistic take from a Bitcoiner perspective is this. I get my financial advisor, my RIA is finally like, oh, well, we can own some Bitcoin because we have this BlackRock ETF and we feel comfortable with it. Now, not only does it have counterparty risk at BlackRock, but also then at Coinbase, which is where it's, so you have counterparty on counterparty. Not great. Um, But then they're going to say, oh, this thing's doing really well. So let's say we go four years, five years, Bitcoin price goes up. And they're like, this is the best performing asset. Maybe I want to learn more about this Bitcoin thing. It was a small allocation. Hey, I can't actually, I read, you know, this Isaiah guy's crazy on, on, on Twitter and, and wrote some articles about this self-custody thing. Like, can I self-custody this, this ETF, Mr. or Mrs. Advisor? And they're like, oh no, you, you don't want to do that. Well, why? Because like, I've heard that that's really important. And so the idea would be that hopefully the education gets to that person because they're interested because the number goes up, but they're never going to be able to redeem and actually get underlying Bitcoin, right? Because you have to be a qualified custodian, which means you got to have inside interest and you got to be, you know, someone that's already connected. But the goal would be, okay, maybe I sell it or maybe I start buying Bitcoin spot and I learn about it. I think that's the optimistic take. I don't think that's what happens personally, but that's what I've heard from some people is that this hopefully is the the piece that starts to get folks more comfortable with it. And there are lots of options out there where people are able to buy Bitcoin and have a, an experience that from a self-custody perspective, that is what's called collaborative custody. So maybe you hold two keys and then another company holds one where oh my gosh, something happens, like it's still there. And there's backups, there's inheritance planning, there's all these things that are getting built out to where you can have true spot Bitcoin ETF or spot Bitcoin where you don't have to have an ETF. You don't have these other things. And oh, by the way, you don't need to pay the fee on the ETF. You just buy the darn thing and hold it. And I think that's where some people are like, well, it doesn't earn any yield. It doesn't do anything else. It's like, no, but it's going to monetize. And at the end of the day, like if the value accrues there, because there's this idea of like Bitcoin is a black hole where it's going to suck in the value, right? I say Bitcoin's a sponge for the $900 trillion in, in value around the world. You have real estate, you have currency, you have stocks, you have bonds, you have art, you have you know cars, all these different things, right? Bitcoin is going to soak up some of that store of value asset. So right now it's, you know, call it 600 billion. It's tiny. It is a, you know, hair on an elephant's bottom. It's nothing, but it's going to soak up a lot of that stuff because over time, as you talked about this wealth transfer, it's going to younger generations that are going to be more comfortable with this and it's going to happen. But I mean, I've met baby boomers that have 30 Bitcoin, 25 Bitcoin. Like they've stacked a lot of Bitcoin with conviction that I was blown away from like, this guy's 70 years old and has that much Bitcoin. Like I'm blown away where people are starting to get it and understand like what this thing is. So I'm with you. I don't like BlackRock. I don't like Larry Fink. The whole ESG backtracking, you know, now Ramco CEO or whatever's on their board. Like there's all kinds of things that are, yeah, they just want to make money on it. And that's normal. Again, if Bitcoin is a good thing, just like if it's good money, they're going to look at it and say, we have demand. We have people that want this. How can we sell it to them and hope that they'll buy it from us because we are the trusted person in the relationship versus saying, let's go educate them. Let's go from another direction and just tell them to screw BlackRock and go do it themselves. A lot of people are too lazy. And I think one of the key things with Bitcoin is it brings back personal responsibility. And I want that to happen. But 2020 did not give me good vibes on personal responsibility and uh, people making their own decisions. So I'll continue to fight it. I'll continue to encourage people to to learn. But at the end of the day, a lot of people just want to be told what to do and they'll just follow along. And that's unfortunate. But the nice thing with Bitcoin is it gives you the ability to take self-custody. And unlike gold, it doesn't need to be centralized because it is digital. It can move anywhere very quickly. And I don't have to get a Brinks truck and armed guards to, to move it around. And I think that's the big difference where you've seen gold 
in ETFs, right? Then it gets the price suppressed where if you try to play those games, but you don't actually hold the underlying, you're going to get blown up because you can't print more Bitcoin. And I think that's the big thing that is the difference. There's some people that have articulated that much better, but I, that was my big concern for a while is how does the paper derivative, you know, gold 2.0 price suppression happen? So... Well, I love that you guys are fighting the fight. I love that you guys have, I mean, there's nobody has done more to when people talk about like, you know, economic literacy and all that is really, you know, some of the big issues, issues with the deficit spending issues with inflation. Um, you know, the Bitcoiners have really done a lot to popularize and to bring those ideas to the forefront, which is critically important. Um, you know, and ultimately money belongs to the people it belongs to us, not the government. We generate the wealth. Uh, they just tax and spend it, right? So, um, you know, the idea of getting the printing away from the government and back to the people, I think, is uh, is a very valuable, a very valuable thing. Um, any other questions? I know we're getting close to time. I have kind of two things, but if you have a question, I don't want to not not. No, go for it. Yeah, what do you got? So, you had 15 years after the global financial crisis, our banking system as fragile as ever. Agreed. Central banking interventions gave us temporary rising pri asset prices and nothing else. The system is failing. We must reestablish free market principles while we still can. That was in March of this year. So if you could wield the, the magic power to make, make changes, right? I think from a Bitcoin perspective, that's what brings free market back because I don't think we have a free and open market. And I think you obviously agree with that, but how do you change it if, if it's not Bitcoin? I guess would be my question. I, I would say that, you know, you end the Fed, right? You end, you, not just the Fed, the idea, the poisonous idea that we as people the ability to control markets. And, you know, I, I don't think the Fed, I don't think they're bad people. I don't think their, their, their aims are bad. You know, there are, of course, unintended consequences. And I think, you know, the idea that, oh, we can, um, you know, we want to avoid crashes. Look what happened in 1929, right? There was no Fed and we had a, a stock market crash. And therefore, if we just put in politicians and we give them enough resources, we can stop that from happening. And of course, the unintended consequences are leading to more and more bubbles in uh, uh, shorter and shorter timeframes, right? And all this leftover after each of these you know, cycles, after every boom bust cycle, um, it's like, you know, we're circling around in a tornado, but they, the numbers get bigger and bigger and bigger to the point where we are now too big to collapse, too big to fail. We, you know, I mean, the, just every retirement asset has to be in the S&P. They've made it. They've punished savers to the level, to such an extreme level that you really have to, you must be in the market. There's almost no way out of it if you're, if you're saving for retirement. And, you know, what that means is that when you have a stock market that you can argue is being overvalued on historical valuation levels, is being overvalued by a good, you know, 30 to 40%, you could say that, you know, what happens if those, you know, levels normalize? It's going to be absolutely devastating to the entire country. So, um, you know, and, and then and then when it starts to happen, what? well, okay, the Fed goes right back to, well, let's manipulate rates, let's print more, let's do QE, we'll trickle down. I mean, all these QE is just trickled. It's a fancy way of trick, saying trickle down economics. And every single time they do it, there are unintended consequences. And the unintended consequences are decreasing wealth mobility and increasing wealth gap, right? The middle class is completely gutted. Um, and, and it's just, you know, and, and, you know, what, what essentially what they're doing when they're saying you're saying that inflation is bad, right? When, when uh, used car prices went up last year, I was like, oh, that's terrible. We've got to figure a way to bring it down. But when stock prices go up, nobody gets worried. Everyone says, oh, no, that's a good thing. And it's the same thing. Who owns 
used cars, right? People do, saver, you know, in, investors who own stocks, the same thing, right? Who's buying a, a, a used car, somebody that's maybe on the way up, starting their first job, saving, putting together money to buy a car. Who's buying stocks? People like you and I, people on the way up, people that are working, taking their money and investing. So this illusion of high stock prices being a net good, I think is a little bit foolish. And because, because at the end of the day, what do they do? A high stock price is more fragile than a low stock price. If you tell me that the intrinsic value of a company, the breakup value, right, the machines, the, uh, the IP, the trucks, the whatever, whatever they own, the collective value of the components of a stock are worth X, but it's going to trade as a stock at X plus Y, I'm telling you that Y is fragility, right? You're introducing fragility to the system because at any time, if there's a liquidity crisis or a narrative crisis or, or some sort of panic, for whatever reason, stock prices come down, that stock will fall down to X. It'll fall down to its intrinsic value. But there will be a price at which somebody says, hey, you're telling me that I can buy a company. They've got accounts payable. They've got a business. They're, they're worth $100 million and now they're trading at 80. Okay. I'll buy them from 80. And, and break it up and sell it for 100 or I'll just wait till it trades back up to 100 and I just made 20%. The fragility is not the low stock prices. It's not a declining market. The fragility is high stock prices. And this idea that we can hold these things up forever and keep them at these elevated prices introduces more and more stability. And it requires more and more central bank interventions, which have more and more unintended consequences. And we're seeing that play out. Yeah, the idea that humans can manage complex systems just doesn't work in I am by no means an Austrian economic like wizard, but like that just makes sense. And you kind of wonder why that is not taught at all to anyone. Why is Austrian economics and this idea of human action and, you know, that drives so many different things. And one of my big issues with intrinsic value is, well, intrinsic value is always in the eye of the beholder. And like, it's different. If I'm in the desert and you offer me a Rolls Royce or a water bottle, um, which one am I going to take? Right. So like intrinsic value is always going to be dependent, but I, I get what you're saying. And I don't want to go down that kind of rabbit hole, but the other piece of like, if we just get this person in, it'll fix it. It's kind of the idea of like the govern me harder meme that was out there for a while, right? (laughs) Just like, do it, do it harder, do it more and it'll be better. It's like, you, you understand, it's almost like you have this, this wound and you just want to scratch it more and just make it worse. And that's all we're doing. We never let it heal. We actually never let it heal. And so we just rip it open bigger and we try to put more stuff on it. And it's like, we just rip it open bigger and we're just going to eventually get to the point where going back to what we talked about earlier the hyperinflation in the fall of this empire at some point, right? Um, and we don't let people touch the stove and get burned. Going back to 2008, we, we made it very clear that there's certain people that are untouchable or certain institutions that are untouchable. And then even at the beginning of this year with the certain you know FDIC limits, and we just talked about that too, people should touch the stove and get burned. If you had more than the assets that were in there that were protected, you should lose them. And yes, that's painful. Yes, people get hurt. Yes, people can't make payroll. But those were all decisions and that is all the responsibility on those people. It is a personal responsibility that is lost. And again, that's why I think Bitcoin reintroduces some personal responsibility because if you want to hold your own wealth and be self-sovereign and you screw up and it's gone, no one can make you right. And that should introduce a little bit more care. That should introduce a little bit more um, desire to like focus on things and learn it and understand it. But again, people just want the easy button. And, um, I look at the idea of it being more fragile, more fragile, the antidote to that, right. The vaccine, the whatever, right. Is going to be, to me, it's Bitcoin, right? Because I can just opt out of that and say, you know what? I know that they're going to print more money without a doubt. I know that for a fact moving forward, you and I both know that 
what does really well when you see the monetary base go up? Bitcoin. It's the best performing asset to, to fight that. So why don't I just store wealth there and continue to store wealth there? And then all of a sudden that value begins to accrue to me at a higher rate than anyone else. And then you can change and rebuild that system using that. That's the way that I look at it. I mean, again, I'll say bell curve, simple left side, just saving the better money. And at the end of the day, all of a sudden life is cheaper and easier for me. Because if I measure the pricing in houses in Bitcoin terms, it was 42 in 2015 and it's 14 for the median new house today. Now, again, it's been a rocky ride. It's not linear. And if I'm trying to pay my mortgage in six months, I'm not going to hold Bitcoin. I'm not advocating for, you know, living on zero. Uh, there's people that do that. I think it's great. Um, there's some math behind it that makes sense. But ultimately, um, if you're saving for goals that are longer term, and I think this applies to a lot of RAs as well, Bitcoin actually works really well for that. And I think the fundamental disconnect is they don't believe it actually will work in the future. And they think it's, you know, tulips are fake or anything else. And it's not right. And Paul Tudor Jones and others have said, Hey, when the 2017 crash happened, you know, these crazy people, like 80 some percent of them didn't sell at all. And so there is a minority, these crazy Sorry, people. 80% of those in the tulips? Yeah, 80% no, no, no. Of the in, in the Bitcoin price when it crashed in 2017. Oh, right? yeah. There's a lot of yeah. people that just didn't sell, right? Oh, it yeah. just held. The, the resilience, hobbies, of, right? the resilience of, 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 like I said, you kind of had the two, the two polar ends of the, you know, the purists and the, uh, and the charlatans. And the purists, their resilience through up and down markets is, is unreal. It's incredible. I mean, the people, people that I know in my network that are true believers of Bitcoin, you know, Bitcoin could trade down to, uh, you know, could trade down 90%. And, and I think they would still own it for the right reasons. Yeah. And I, I would agree. There's a lot of people that, that have conviction that this is, if this fails, right, A, uh, they're better off for it. I would agree, me personally, like it's made some personal changes, some other things. You just look at the world differently. But B, if this fails, it's central bank digital currency and a, a world that we don't want to be in, right? And so I think right. that introduces you know, the next, you know, hour or two that we could have a conversation, which I know we don't have time for. So I'm going to close with one other, uh, one other quick thing. And uh, it's a little different outside of Bitcoin, but I want to just thank you for the back and forth on the Bitcoin piece. Cause I don't know if it changes any minds. Um, you've talked to lots of people around Bitcoin. We can, you know, chat further into the future uh, on that one, but you had a tweet that said the most successful people I know have one thing in common, a massive network of people that have been kind to earlier in their career. So anything that correlation is causation on this one. Um, you want to unpack or kind of explain that real quick? It's it's just a common a common thread. It, you know, there are people that I I know a number of people where they now work for someone that they had hired and and mentored early in their career. And you know, everyone's you know circumstance changes. There's you know a lot of luck and randomness and you know different things, and everyone ends up different places. And people that. You know, I think what when when things are going well, when you're doing well, you just get this big promotion or something. Everyone's reaching out. You put it on LinkedIn. There's a million. Oh, congratulations! It's great. When it goes the other way, when people are in a bad spot, when they lose their job or their business and things aren't going well, there are a lot fewer people that seem to reach out and offer their help. And you know, from a real, you know, that are really willing to do so. Those people, the people that kind of people that do not just when you're up, but also when you're down. Um, the people that do it that are pure about it and real about it and really help, you know, not just you specifically, but in general that 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 are helpful and look out for other people. Those people tend to get lucky in their careers. And I've seen this over and over and over again. Those people are the people that, you know, other, people will look out for them. Right. People will reciprocate. Um, they they you know, they'll get recommended. They have better networks. And so much of what we do, even on the entrepreneurial side 
you know, even in the investing side, you know, it's not, it's not just corporate careers, but especially in corporate careers, so much of what we do is about networks, right? People that, you know, were previously your client or previously your boss, and now they're your client or, your, you know, now they're the other way. Now they're your boss, right? So much of it just gets moved around and you can't do, there are very, very few jobs that you can do in a vacuum. I mean, even, even if you're doing content, even if you're writing, even if you're just a writer, if you're a great writer and your work isn't shared and recommended, it's going to be very hard to get, to get your message out there. Everything you do requires a network. It requires people uh, to be on your side, to rally behind you. And the people that tend to have people on their side are the people that have, have earned it, that have worked for it, that have been kind to others, that have you know, done the things that you need to do um, to build a network. And I think it's one of the most important things that we can all do. Um, it's a good reminder to myself to do more of it. But you know, when, when people are in a spot where they need help, to spend the time to help them, it'll come back around. I love that. I've seen it personally um, as well. And I, I saw that and I was like, that's a great spot to, to end on. And, and one of the, the, the things that I'll share is uh, at this point, I think a lot of people know, like from the RA perspective, I sold my stake in that, but having, whether it's clients, whether it's people, people just reaching out that care and saying lots of nice things or, or reaching out to make sure, Hey, are you good? Or what do you need? Or things going on? It's like, Hey, this was a decision that I made. This is something that, that I, I wanted to do. This is kind of the, the why behind it. But it is pretty cool when you have an impact on people. And sometimes people don't realize things until something changes and they're like, Oh shoot, like that was really valuable or really meaningful. And um, yeah, it means a ton. So it's super important, especially, you know, for anyone that's an RA like that relationship and the folks that they get to work with that are maybe their partners. Um, those relationships are also super important because yeah, roles change and, and people are, are still there. So I love that. So thank you. Um, is there a Bitcoin resource that I can send you? Is there a, an area? I mean, outside of maybe it's a tether thing. Um, but is there anything there that you were like, this would be the thing that I would want to know more about that would help me? That yeah, I've always had. Yeah, I would say the one thing I have never seen a full convincing um, retort to the Bennett Tomlin research on tether and something that acknowledges what he's and, and, you know, ideally kind of case by case, point by point, um, refutes it, I think that would be really helpful. But you know, even even if we say, let's let's say, let's just take it as a theoretical that Tether is completely entirely fraudulent, that doesn't mean that that me or anyone else that that thinks that is necessarily anti-Bitcoin. Then it becomes a timing thing. It's like let's wait for for the waters to be safe. Let's wait for, you know, for this storm to pass and then it might be the right time. And and I think um I, I think that's kind of where I'm at at the moment. It's like, hey, Regulatory winds are changing. There's some stuff out there still that hasn't been cleaned up. Let's see what things look like once, you know, once that clears. All right. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for the time. This was a ton of fun. All right. Yeah, it was. Thank you.